mass poverty, there was mass starvation, and people were literally offering their daughters for small amounts of money in marriage. They are offering one girl so that the rest of the family can eat. Today's guest is Bina Shah, one of Pakistan's most prolific and popular authors. Her take on culture and feminism has caused controversy in a country where nearly 300 women were killed in honor killings in 2020. She's constantly featured in the New York Times and the BBC. We discuss what Jordan Peterson doesn't understand about the patriarchy, why almost half the women in Pakistan have experienced physical violence, and the major differences between Eastern and Western society. Once again, my friends, it is time to learn some shit. You are not going to believe some of the stories she's got. Enjoy the podcast. The way of Will John. Guys, what's going on? So obviously, um, this one's going to kick off in a bit of a different way because our wonderful guest is a writer. So I'm going to go straight into something that she's written. And this is going to kick us off. So my name is Bina Shah, and I'm a writer, essayist, and feminist. Feminism is really nothing to be afraid of, even though in Pakistan, it's a dirty word, a sign that you're an atheist, a Western agent, a threat to the system. I'm neither an atheist nor a Western agent, but I am a feminist. I am a threat to the system, to the status quo that dictates where women should be in our society. I decided a long time ago that the system was rotten. And that feminism was the best way for me to upend that system. So could you continue on with a bit of that? You wrote quite a bit in that, uh, in that essay, in that article, let's, let's say. So stemming from that, uh, how else could we define you? Wow. Starting things off with a bang, really. Very, very high intensity. Thank you so much for having me today. And I am honored that you have decided to uh, interview me and give me a platform to talk about my views on many things, not just about feminism and not just about Pakistan, but about, you know, where women are in the world today. And I think in the 21st century, we expected ourselves to be a lot further along than we are. So I think we can start there, that there's so much that is rotten in the fact that half of the world's population is still treated as second-class citizens. And when I started out writing what I do and working with what I do, there was a much clearer divide between different parts of the world, the global north, the global south, what we used to call the first world, the third world, east and west. And it seemed very apparent that it was in the global south, in in the East, in the Muslim world, in South Asia, that women were clearly seen to be inferior to men in status, in so many opportunities, in, in really almost every way. And it was in the North, the global North of the Western world or the developed world where women had achieved equal status. They'd broken through those glass ceilings. They'd gotten the right to vote. They were able to, you know, carry the weight of the world. And slowly, maybe over 20 years or so, we're kind of seeing that the differences are not so great between that part of the world and this part and the North and the South and the East and the West. And I think what I'm waking up to today is the realization that this is global. This is a global issue. This is a almost a global war, I would say. And there are many writers, fine writers, feminist writers, journalists, who, who almost call it a war on women. And while I don't want to be so hostile and combative 
straight off the bat, uh, you know, you can see how that might have some appeal to those of us who are sitting here and going, wait, what happened? So in, in knowing that, I think it would be good to give a good understanding of where we stand or how you see it. Uh, that is the reality for women in this uh, world right now. And I'm going to read off just another stat that uh, was, was jotted down, which is the worldwide figures for violence against women is one in three. That was shocking to me. I mean, that's a shocking stat. Uh, if it's true, I mean, I didn't check all the sources. I don't know everything necessarily, obviously myself, but if that is true, that's wild and not something that I think the average man or person, anyone really knows. Um, and then if we make it a bit more, you know, uh, local, obviously, as you went on to, to say in Pakistan, according to human rights watch, that number is between 70 and 90% of, of women in Pakistan suffer some form of violence because of their gender. That's, that's everybody. I, that's everyone. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? And it's really depressing to sort of absorb that statistic. I mean, these are numbers, but then if you start looking and you look at the women that are around you in everyday life and you're like, is it her? Is it her? Could it be her? Could it be her? Is it me? You know? And you're looking at everyone and, and you're realizing that the ones that don't go through this are the exception. And because, I mean, because it's like that, and this is obviously not something that I've, uh, I grew up in a great uh, household, let's, let's say that. And, and growing up in a household where you see good relationship between men and women uh, really shapes your worldview, right? Because then when you hear some of these horror stories, it's hard for me to conceptualize that myself at, in, in, a, in a home setting, you know? And uh, so I'm kind of curious what the average, and this goes, obviously, it's not just about Pakistan, as you, as you said, this is a kind of a global, this is a global issue and a global war. But where it stands now, do you feel that, like you said, you said you thought that we would be better along. I, did women feel like they were going to be better along? Because it, it, the way I see it, I don't know how many people are aware of, I mean, I think, I think the general consensus is that everyone understood that there was some inequality, uh, there were some oppressive, largely oppressive things happening to women, uh, even in the West, obviously 20 years ago or wherever. And, you know, there's still stuff that, that women are fighting against today. But where do you think we're, if you think that we should have been further along, where should we be? What does that look like? Because I'm having a hard time trying to conceptualize what this perfect equality world is that we all are striving for. I, it doesn't seem, it seems like a pipe dream a little bit. Like, how, what does it really look like to you? It looks like a place, first of all, where, you know, men don't raise their fists. That's the first, I mean, that that's basically where we start. And it's a place where I think men are aware of this endemic of violence, because it's not enough for women to be aware, right? It's where men themselves wake up and realize we have a problem and it's not a woman's problem and it's not somebody else's problem. And it's, it's our problem. And we as a gender or we as a group or a community or whatever, we need to do more to talk about this with our sons, for example. I mean, what is the first thing I remember my father teaching my brother when my brother was very small 
I just remember my father saying, never hit a girl, never hit a woman. That was a very strong message that was given in my household to my brother. And if every household in every part of the country heard that message, at least we would start seeing some kind of awareness being raised. Let me say that in cultures where uh, violence is uh, against women is endemic, a lot of the times, you know, this is a family system issue. As you said, you grew up in a household where it, things were good, relations were good between men and women. What does that good really mean? When I have talked to women here and asked them, you know, is your husband good to you? The answer is yes, he's really good. He doesn't hit me. He never hits me. That's good. Now think about where that bar is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's just so many things all at once. But I do want to say that I am seeing in Pakistan a growing women's movement and awareness is coming. You know, there are activists on the ground. There are, and especially the young feminist activists in, in alliance with the older guard and sort of, you know, the older women who've been doing this for the last 50 years or so, raising awareness that women have the right, girls and women have the right to safety and security in their homes, on the streets, at the workplace, on public transportation, in public areas, you know, raising the awareness, raising their voices, protesting when something terrible happens that's really egregious, protesting when it's, you know, sort of a daily endemic thing. So I am seeing at the same time, you see the terrible statistics, you hear the terrible stories, but you see this wave of women going out there and fighting for other women and really just making it aware in a society that honestly had no clue that A, this was an issue and B, that certain practices that were accepted are actually wrong and need to be stopped. Can you, can you touch on as well? Because I mean, obviously we're, we're, we're focusing in on violence because that seems to be like the first step, right? Uh, and for a lot of people, that would be a no brainer, uh, that not even, I, I would even take it further. If you can avoid fighting, <laughs> barring self defense, right? You, you're gonna, you're gonna up your, uh, the happiness, uh, in your life. Uh, so, but in, in that sense, there are other, there are other issues going on there. Uh, just like there are in, in, in any country, but is arranged, are arranged marriages still common? Is that, uh, what's, what's yes. the situation with that? So there's a, you know, there's a big difference between an arranged marriage and a forced marriage. An arranged marriage is very much where families set up introductions for their, for their, their children, their grown sons and daughters, and they introduce them to each other. And, through family connections, friend connections, you know, we have, uh, our, our social bonds are very strong in Pakistan and you always want to try and ensure that the person your, your son or daughter marries is somebody that you can sort of check up on their character. You kind of know that where they're coming from, who they are. So there are arranged marriages and then there are and there's various degrees of those. There's the kind of arranged marriage where you'll be like, okay, let's introduce the kids. They can go out and meet each other over coffee. They can talk to each other. Or let's arrange the kids and they don't even see each other till their wedding day. This is what happened in our grandmothers and grandfathers' times. And yeah. And then you've got the forced marriage where it's often it's an underage girl. Often it's, it can be an underage boy and, or it's an underage girl and a much older man. And what, these are. What age? Sorry to cut in, but what are we talking? 
Well, if, if we're talking the issue of child marriage, then it can be pretty bad. It can be 10, 11, 12. How, if we're talking. Well, sorry, sorry. Yeah. My brain is breaking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I need to, I, I, I gotta, I gotta truly understand what we're talking about here. What portion of forced marriages though are going on? Is this a very minor, is this a minor thing? Is this happening in small villages? And, uh, and also why? This is in rural areas mostly, and it's because of poverty. Poverty is the ill that leads to so many other problems in society. So it's usually poverty. For example, uh, the last year in Afghanistan, next door con- neighboring country, uh, after the United States, after, after the Western troops pulled out, the country collapsed and there was just mass chaos. There was mass poverty. There was mass starvation and people were literally offering their daughters for small amounts of money in marriage. Just, and they would, they are offering one girl so that the rest of the family can eat. Okay. So this is what we're seeing. We're seeing things like this happen. This is in a collapsed society, for example, often in places where there are natural disasters. For example, there was a, a massive earthquake in Kashmir, which is to the north of the country. Same thing. You know, the, the people were destitute. They were starving, marrying a girl a legitimate relationship rather than prostitution or rather than, you know, sexual trafficking that seemed to be an honorable solution to a really terrible problem. And it's also social tradition. It's also custom. It's it's many, many, many things. I couldn't begin to tell you the percentage of forced marriages that happen here, you know, because Forced also, there's so many degrees of force. Is there, you know, does the girl get threatened with violence if she doesn't comply? Or is it just a lot of social, uh, emotional sort of blackmail and coercion and you have to do this for the family's sake? If it's like a a very young girl, obviously, you know, it's very easy to push these young girls around. If it's a girl who's 17 or 18, 16, 17, 18 is the legal age in Pakistan. So after that, a marriage is not illegal. But of course, there's so many girls that are saying they want to study, they want to have careers, and the families are too socially conservative. No, you should be married by 20. You should be settled. You can study after you get married, which rarely happens. So these are, you know, these are traditions, customs. Then there's the overarching pressure of poverty, desperation, so many things. And girls and women always seem to be at the short end of that stick. So... Marriage and education aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, it's, again, we're going back to the idea of that, you know, patriarchy seeks to control the actions and activities of girls and women. And why? Most feminists will tell you that it's because what is it that women and girls do? Well, they, they have children and children are seen as so many things. They're seen as a commodity, insurance for the future, you know, very much so an asset for so many different reasons. So whoever controls that line of production, if we want to get real Marxist about it, whoever controls that production has a whole lot of power in their hands. So when you, it's not as simple as like, okay, I got a girl, I'm just going to marry her off and ruin her life. No, it's about, well, I've got this daughter and what's going to happen to her. I'm worried for her future. I want to see her settled with a decent husband in a decent family. When she has children, I want to see that she's really well taken care of. I have to be in control. I have to guarantee this. I'm looking at it from the more sort of the average Pakistani parent's point of view. It's my responsibility. I've got this daughter. She's very vulnerable. 
in a very dangerous world or in a very dangerous, you know, society, what's the best way I can guarantee her safety? It's to have her married into a family that I know and that I trust. Right. That's. But then when the girl says something like, uh, but I want to be a doctor. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh no, what happens when she says, hang on, I don't really want to go this path. I want to go my own path. I see. Then you have a whole load of other issues to contend with. Yeah. It's always fascinating. This, uh, you know, I spent a, 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 a large portion of time in the, in the, the Middle East, uh, never been to Pakistan, mm. but, uh, what country were you in? I've been in. Dubai, obviously, I played in Not Morocco, uh, a All whole right. bunch, Egypt, many, 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 many times, obviously. Uh, and so, you know, I have a fact. When are you coming to Pakistan? I would love, I would love, we have tons. We've got a guy in the company uh, from Pakistan. He's, I would love to, you know, uh, I just, I, I would love to get back over there. It's been a while. It's been at least two or three years, really, since I've been, been around that area. Uh, if it wasn't for COVID, I'm sure I would have actually been around there, right? I was in Turkey right before. Yeah. And that's the furthest, that's the furthest east I've been since, since COVID. Uh, right. But I've always found it fascinating this, that there, how, how there's such a staunch difference between the Western, uh, ideal of the individual and the community aspect that happens, uh, in the east. Uh, it's so incredibly different because as you describe what uh, an average, let's say, uh, parent is thinking about their daughter and having to marry up. It's a, it's a, it's a tough world out there. We need to make sure these are also things that Western parents consider, but they're not, even though Western parents definitely do muddle, uh, or meddle in, in this, uh, you know, stuff, they have different tactics for doing this, right? Uh, uh, sure. But it, it's, it's just such a fascinating thing to, to see. And I wanted to, I want to touch on, uh, you mentioned the patriarchy, which mm. is something that I've never really done any sort of deep analytical thinking on what it is, how it's really structured and stuff like this. But I did have, uh, a quote, which I, I, as a matter of fact, it's not a quote. I shouldn't even say it's a quote, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm basically going to, uh, do my best to summarize. Do you know, are you aware of Jordan Peterson? Uh, Okay. Who doesn't know Jordan Peterson? Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Then have you seen the quote or at least clip, uh, where he speaks to, I don't believe this woman was claiming to be a feminist, but I, she was, she was, uh, I, I believe in her position though, she was not defending, but at least serving the, the feminist side of the arguments, uh, and putting that forward. He responded to, to her based on, she was, uh, you know, basically saying that a lot of the things, many things in society were at, are, are negative or certain things are negative because of the patriarchy. And he basically went on to say that not necessarily that the patriarchy is to blame or that he wouldn't call, he wouldn't call it, uh, he wouldn't call it just the patriarchy, let's say, because also you're taking this small, minute group of men, they were trying to, to say, in power. Well, what about the men who are suffered? He, he goes on to say that most violent crimes are committed by men. Uh, therefore, they're, uh, most men are in jail, uh, the homeless. Uh, there are all, all sorts of issues, right? That the patriarchal structure, right? If we are living in a patriarchy, that there's a massive amount of issues that have also affected men as well. 
uh, in this in the society. So I'm clearly butchering this. He's a way more eloquent <laughs> speaker than I am, and I've probably butchered his point. However, I was hoping that you had actually heard that and they could actually touch on on that. I've heard similar arguments. I'm, I don't recall this particular exchange. I, I don't okay. watch Jordan Peterson clips. Sure. Tell, tell me, though. Tell, tell me. It seems like you, you definitely have an opinion, at least on his thoughts on the patriarchy. Give me a Give me an idea. If well, first of all, I have thoughts on on Jordan Peterson. Unfortunately, who really, I would say he's he's really attuned to the problems of Western society, but he really doesn't understand Eastern societies at all. And I think that's a problem with a lot of these uh, modern philosophers and modern intellectuals and thinkers who place, you know, Western Judeo-Christian civilization at the apex of of development in history and write off every single other culture, be it uh, African cultures that are so rich, Middle Eastern, Arab, Indian, da, 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 basically the, the rest of the world. Um, so what Jordan Peterson doesn't understand about patriarchy is how insidious it is and how it runs from every level of functioning from actual state institutions all the way down to the each individual family. Now, I'm going to draw back a little bit and say that, for example, in, in Islamic culture, in Islam, the Muslim religion, the ideal system, both of governance and of family, is that of a benevolent patriarch at the head. So the bene benevolent patriarch who rules the Muslim people, the ummah, as we say in Arabic, and then, you know, you have your heads of state and you have your parliamentarians or you have your your majlis, your consensus group, so on and so forth. They're all headed by benevolent patriarchs who are working for the best interest of everybody. They're not working selfishly. They're not working to, you know, further their own interests, but to further the interests of all citizens, including men and women. And. This goes all the way down to each individual family where the head of each family is meant to be a benevolent patriarch who applies the rules and limits of, that the religion teaches us that we learn from our culture, but only in the most gentle and uh, humanistic of ways. Let's put it that way. So this is the ideal patriarchy. This is the imagined patriarchy. And let's say the one that we aspire to when we're thinking of patriarchy, but which we really rarely actually reach. I mean, there's, of course, many. There's the imagined matriarchy to the imagined matrilineal societies. And, you know, you see their real world counterparts in, for example, Scandinavian countries that where women are prime ministers or so on and so forth. But what happens with patriarchy, unfortunately, and I think it tends to be human nature that, you know, people love to stay in power. OK, I, I, the problem is power and the problem is what do you do to retain power and control? You often have to become punitive because you can't let it go. You can't say, well, I decided this, but my wife decided something else and my daughter decided something else. And I'm here to advise and support, but let them still make their own decisions. No, this doesn't happen. Suddenly you've got the patriarch going. They're not listening to me. They're not obeying me. And then the ego gets involved. And then the patriarch turns to maybe sort of harsher measures. Let us not forget that in these traditional societies, the man of the family is the provider and the breadwinner. And having that economic power means a lot of social power, a lot of family power. 
especially then when you consider the pressure that that you get on women, don't go to work, stay home and raise the children. Well, that's great. That's fine. And I mean, I've even heard people like, well, I don't know if Jordan Peterson says this out loud, but you know, they, they say that life was better when it was dad was out working, mom was raising the kids, the kids came out great and everybody was happy in 1950s, what have you, right? Regardless of the fact of economic reality that we need two incomes today, kids need this, kids need that. Okay. So the women are raised then to be dependent on the men financially. A woman can't walk out of a marriage that isn't serving her needs. Let's not even go to an abusive marriage or a violent marriage, but a marriage where she's not happy. She's not an equal partner. She's not her, her needs and her voice is not considered, but she hasn't got the wherewithal to walk out. Why? She's not earning. She hasn't been in the, maybe she never got a career or she had one and she hasn't been in the job market for 20 years. So now she's, her skills are obsolete. Uh, she doesn't know how to drive, for example. I mean, I know that's un- impossible in America. Everybody drives, but many parts of the world where women can't drive, they don't have control of the family car. People can only afford a motorbike and women don't really drive motorbikes around in public, right? So you have all of a sudden a man who's got all the power in his hands and, and the women and daughters are fighting or they have to struggle very hard to correct that imbalance of power. That is what patriarchy really looks like. Uh-huh. Yeah. So in, in your estimation, it's almost just like, it's kind of like that failed uh, attempt of communism uh, in, in a certain sense. Uh, and don't worry, I'm not putting, I'm not putting words in here. <laughs> I'm not saying you like communism or anything like this, but there's the no, same. No, I'm not a specialist in communism. I'm uh, really not well versed in how communism failed and what happened and what didn't well, happen. According to the West, let's just put it there since these aren't going to be my, yeah, my words. The idea obviously behind communism is that, you know, the state will take care of everything and this kind of socialist, uh, also endeavor, sure. right? And we aspire that everyone will be happy and things will be spread out perfectly. And in the same sense, you're saying that we have this, or at least the, the aspiration in a patriarchy with a benevolent, a benevolent patriarch who is hopefully just going to provide everything perfectly and equally. And all of this, it, it seems like it's almost human nature that we have this innate urge to believe in the best, uh, and to believe in this positive ideal. And we're always searching for a utopia, uh, which is a good and a bad thing, right? That we have an aspiration to something better than where we are. Yet, uh, it's still yet to be seen if we can have heaven on earth, uh, and to have the best of all the qualities that we see within us. I like to believe that we can, uh, that it's going to take massive shifts in mentality and, uh, massive shifts in, uh, where we focus, where the, you know, where, where men and women are putting their focus. Um, I think, uh, there's always a balancing act, right? That's going on between, uh, the world and in everyone, uh, just in life in general. And, uh, so I, I find that interesting, but yeah, just to go back to your, your estimation of it, it's, it's basically essentially to say that we had this attempt at this patriarchal society, but it's horribly flawed due to the fact that, you know, power corrupts and, uh, <laughs> And we we aren't going to probably have that type of balance in the same system that we're in uh, if we just keep keep going. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but how how are we going to how is this going to change unless 
what is a what is a non patriarchal non matriarchal society look like? That's such a good question that I'm going to have to think about it. But I just want to go back to what you said that you know we we want we are always looking for the ideal, and I think it's so important that we do look for ideals and we have the the image of the ideal in our mind. But I think it's really important to understand that society, humanity, it's it's never pass or fail. Do you know what I mean? It's never like either we succeeded 100% or we failed 100%. It's always stages of evolution. It's always, you know, a certain amount of success, a certain amount of fail. I, although I think that any place where, you know, there are women being harmed or there are girls being harmed, that's a fail to right. begin with. And in that sense, every country and every society fails. Because, I mean, there's just too much going wrong. Again, I think there's a lot of things tied up with the enslavement of women and its economics as well. If you look at sexual trafficking of women and girls, it's, you know, the numbers are ridiculous. All sorts of things are going on, it, you know, in parts of the world. I, I, you know, I can't even begin to start naming the countries where so many problems like this happen. Sexual trafficking is a huge, 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 huge issue in the world today. Um, so to go back to your question about, you know, what, what does this look like? What are we trying to achieve? What are, where are we trying to go? I think we're just, I think it's more helpful to just say that we're always trying to do better than we did. We're always trying to kick it up, push it up. And my, my style of working is to always keep pushing, always keep pushing, always keep nudging, nudging, nudging. I'm sort of, Maybe I'm a little too old for the, the, the feminists that are around today. I don't know. But, you know, when I hear them saying things like smash the patriarchy and we're going to break this and fix that and, you know, destroy this and start all over again. My thinking is more than rather than smash the patriarchy, we got to find ways to go around the patriarchy. We got to find ways to get ourselves as women into a position where we are strong enough then to really start upturning things. But it's got to be concerted efforts. It's got to be uniform efforts. And there's already so much hostility towards feminism. There's already some, oh, I'm not a feminist. I'm a humanist. Feminist is a dirty word. I don't call myself a feminist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're like just stuck at, on words. We're stuck at semantics. What is it that we're really working for? We're working for a better world. And a better world is one where women, girls don't have to be afraid. They can achieve their full potential. They are satisfied and actualized members of society. They have time for themselves as individuals, as well as contributing to society, to as the collective as a whole. That That's kind of where we want to keep nudging the world in that direction. Mm. Uh, I by no means would call you too old uh, for anything. I'm a huge person first on that, that the number is ridiculous. It means nothing. However, I, I would call that possibly too refined, too, too smart, too intelligent, because it's always funny that youthful angst smash the patriarchy, smash this system, smash the, well, what, what guys, what are we going to do when it's smashed? What do we do? What do we do after you broke it? All right. The system, we don't like it. All right, cool. Let's finish it. All right. Well, what now? Right. Let's not end up with some weird, you know, French revolution 
behead everybody and then have an awful society for a while, you know, uh, right after it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so in that sense, yeah, I like the idea of going around patriarchy. That makes a whole lot of sense to me, but in my head, it actually sounds slightly aligned with, I, I don't know, maybe even like Western ideals, this whole idea that you as an individual, before you start going to help everyone else and, and, and to do things, you yourself need to be good and strong. I mean, if with, with a call to make uh, women more empowered, educated, uh, in positions that of, of power that they can affect change, it sounds like it's if we treat women as individual, a call to do that would make a whole lot of change. It becomes less of a movement and more of a, you know, something that has, I think, a bit more more momentum. Well, I think anger, anger has its place. And I mean, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, there was anger and it was righteous anger. Right. But what I think to sustain a movement long term and to really just get it into every household. And there are two things that we really need. One is empathy. We need the empathy of other women, other men to look at the condition of women and girls and really feel that, really feel that from the heart. And what we tend to do is say, oh, well, it doesn't concern me. Oh, it's, it didn't happen in my house. So I, you know, it can't be happening. These are defense mechanisms that this is denial. So we need more empathy. And the second thing we need is more solidarity. We need solidarity between the sexes, amongst the sexes, between generations. We need to really say that, you know, patriarchy, the bad kind, patriarchy seeks to divide us. We have to be united. You know, and rather than say, well, feminists just really want women to be on top and what's going to happen to men, what's going to happen to us? I mean, what happened? You know, the same argument when you outlaw slavery, when you, you know, try and get rid of white supremacy. Oh, no, what's going to happen? Well, what happens is you have a more balanced society. You have a better world. You have opportunities. You have hope. You have all these positive things. There's nothing negative that can come out of working to dismantle, dismantle an unjust system. And patriarchy is as unjust, I would say, as white supremacy, racism, slavery, so on and so forth. I put them in the same category. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to see. Uh, and especially, I mean, you, you, you touch on empathy. Do you think that, and this is, I, I don't know the answer to this. Do you think that the men, actually, I'm going to restrict this to, to the East let's just say for a second, the men who, I mean, if 70 to 90% of women are being abused and you're asking for these men to be empathetic towards their situation, don't we have an issue in the sense that if they don't think anything's being wrong, how am I supposed to feel bad for you? I feel that you are in this place. And I guess it, it does touch into like what, like a slavery type of thing that you just, you just mentioned. It's like, well, if, the the guy's black and he's supposed to be a slave. Uh, I treat my slaves okay, right? They have food. I don't understand what the problem is. So in that sense, uh, it, it seems like it's a hard reach, right? To get someone who's beating their wife or daughter, you know, or sister to to get a point across to have empathy. Or do you think that they feel this and just don't care? It's a tough question. Okay, so this gives me a great opportunity to to give you an example 
and to talk about the situation that's happened in Pakistan. I don't know if you know that we have faced extreme severe disastrous floods. And, uh, oh, so we've had a very, very harsh and extended and intense monsoon season. That's the part of the year where we get seasonal rains. But they've been freakishly, freakishly strong and the rivers have just overflowed and the glaciers are melting. And basically we have 30 million people that have been affected by the floods. And it's all just suddenly come to a head in this past week. So this, we're in a crisis situation. Actually, Pakistan's uh, declared a disaster. It's it's declared a national disaster in this in the last couple of days. Yes. Yeah. So this is what's gripping us at the moment. Pakistan, it's always one crisis to the next. So you never get bored living here. So I um, wanted to do my bit for the flood relief. And I thought about supplying sanitary napkins, menstrual products to women and girls that have been displaced by the floods. They're homeless and and, you know, they might be getting their periods and what are they supposed to do? So I went online and I said, I'm doing this drive. And I, I bought a whole bunch of products and I sent them to this place and to that place and whatever. And I'm, I'm collecting donations to do this. And I tweeted this. Now I have a pretty sizable Twitter following. So I get a lot of interesting comments. And I saw, and there's another group that's doing this as well of young women up in a different city. And a man responded to them, oh, what's the need for this? Why don't you distribute shaving kits to the men as well? And that is a complete lack of empathy. But the good thing is that there were 50 other men who said, God, this is a good idea. I would have never even thought of it if you hadn't talked about it. And it's like, I think that men, especially the men of this generation and the men of today, they want to be empathetic. They want to help, but they are so unaware. Because in Pakistan, you know, talking about your periods is like, oh, my God, you don't talk about this in front of men, right? So the men grow up quite ignorant of this, maybe brothers who have men who have sisters or whatever. They they know, okay, something mysterious goes on, but I don't know exactly what it is. And my sister's like lying there with a hot water bottle, but what's the big deal? So, you know, it's a matter of just saying this is what women and girls are going through. This is where they need assistance. And most men in my country, at the same time that we have these numbers of domestic, but they, the men will still turn around and say, oh my gosh, I don't want these women to suffer. This is hard to see. You're doing a great job. Maybe they don't want to be involved with it. Don't make me send the pads, okay? But like, they will still support it and they will say, gosh, now we can kind of have an idea of what you, you are going through, right? So there are so many ways in which to increase empathy. And we just have to be relentless in our efforts to keep doing it. It's tiring. I know it's tiring. You get tired. You're just like, oh, God, again, again. And tomorrow there'll be another guy saying, why are you doing this? They don't really need this. Of course. You know? Yeah. And I mean, I we have Twitter. I don't use Twitter. Twitter is like a... Man, I mean, of all the negative places on social media, Twitter can be probably the most brutal. Uh, it's but, hard. um, I want to stay on this to even go, okay, for that. That seems like a, that's a, it's, it's quite concrete, that idea. But I don't know if you've actually touched on the part of what about something that's so ingrained in culture that seems so okay. What about violence? I can understand that the period doesn't affect men, but how are you going to get a guy who's already hitting someone and to just 
to I have my own I have my own thoughts on this. This is why I'm very curious on how you would even approach this, or is this being approached? Because if it's seventy to ninety percent, there's got to be some sort of. I mean, the the government should it should be in the government's best interest to not have violence at home. I or maybe it's not. I don't know. We have in our country, most people in Pakistan are what I would call socially conservative. And then we have a very, very small amount of people who identify as liberal. I myself identify as progressive in, in terms of my social outlook and my, my political views and so on and so forth. We have had um, many, many laws passed by successive governments that are pro-women protection of women and girls, you know, out criminalizing sexual harassment in the workplace, outlawing uh, many cultural practices such as uh, forced marriages, for example, forced, uh, what else do we have? Acid attacks, for example, honor killings. These are all cultural practices, quite evil, that have been legally outlawed. Where we fall down is implementation and enforcement of the law and conviction of those people that are, you know, because the legal process, you, you get somebody's, you, you file a complaint at the police. If you get that far, it's amazing because there's so much social pressure to just be quiet, right? You file the complaint. Is the complaint even going to be accepted at the police station? Many times it has not been. Now we are working the, on um, gender sensitivity training for police officers. Having female police officers or female-only police stations, right? So women feel more comfortable going there and making these complaints. Then, <coughs> once the complaint is registered, is it investigated? Do they send people out to go get the guy? Usually, the male police officers have always said, nope, this is a family issue. You resolve it amongst yourselves. We're not going to send anyone out there. So changing that attitude. Then... We also have the complication that many crimes that take place within the family, the legal system has been such that they can be forgiven by other by the victim or by family members. If the family member or the victim forgives the criminal or the you know the per, the perpetrator, then the guys let go. And how do these women get persuaded to forgive the men? Pressure, for example, or He's the bread earner. If he's in jail, we'll all starve or, you know, better forgive him or else we'll, you know, go after your family members, so on and so forth. So this is what I mean when I say patriarchy is insidious. It has so many evil ways of of keeping people. And why? Because why was it so hard to convince people about the evils of slavery, of racism? Why? Because it suits them. It shores up their power. They're on top. They're supreme. Who wants to let go willingly of that position? Sure, sure. And that makes it so, so, so hard to then convince them. Because, yeah, even this police officer who may want to do some good, even if he does, I can see uh, clear issues possibly with him trying to then take that up the the ranks. You know, being like, we should really, I mean, if you're that one cop that really, really wants to pressure this guy, you're all of a sudden going to start to look really weird to the other cops around you who are going to be like, all right, well, we can't trust this guy. He's not part of our... Unfortunately, it's most, most of the cops will be like, Oh, what's the big deal? I, you know, this happens in my family. I saw my father slapping my mother to keep her in line. So why, why is this such a big deal? So that's why gender sensitization and training is so important. 
And we've got a whole new generation of younger men who are in the police and they're getting, you know, into in the ranks and they're educated and they get this stuff. So they set the tone, you know, they set the tone for how they're how they're um, the cops on the ground are going to act. But this is very hard to change. This is a social attitude that truly I think it would take several generations to really make change. Uh, you, you touched on sex trafficking and there is just to go back to it. That is something that is obviously my assumption is that this is something that's been going on across the world. Like you said, in so, I mean, a number of countries, including the U S which was uh, interesting. I ran into an article that was explaining sex trafficking that was going on, in, I believe in places like Los Angeles and New York uh, and yeah. ma mainly in the coast that it was just incredibly rampant. And that was an eye opener to me. But just in general, what is what is going on with sex trafficking? Has this has something changed? Is it more rampant now, or are we just now finding out? Because this is something that, like to me, this is it's complete news. Like within the last few years of just finding out that this is just something that is, I mean, widespread and not even just widespread. It's it's prevalent in 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 places. And I, I realize I understand the. The, the issues in, in the parts of society, like you said, the poverty, uh, you know, the starvation, uh, you know, a better life, uh, a chance at leaving a country or whatever, a situation. I understand this, uh, a lot of the situations for why, uh, you know, a woman could find herself or a girl uh, could find herself in this position. But is it worse than it was or what's going on? I think it's increasing. To be really honest with you, I think it's increasing. And there's so many reasons for it. but just I mean, it's, again, you have to look at it in terms of women being a product or a commodity. And if you compare it, for example, to drug smuggling, I mean, is drug smuggling getting any less? Are we, is it? No, despite all the efforts that everyone is making. No, as long as you have a product and you have a demand for that product, there will be a supply. And uh, I think one of the issues is uh, conflict zones. And there are so many conflict zones in the world. You know, you can just open a map and just stick your finger anywhere and there will have been a war there or a conflict or something. And, you know, the feminists and women who work in those conflict zones, they know that the way war affects women and girls is, is really, really worse, I think, in many ways. So Jordan Peterson may disagree with me on this one. Men are the ones going off to fight the wars and they're the soldiers and they're the ones massively dying. Sure. But look at how the women suffer when those men died. How do they survive? What happens to them in those war zones where there's no way to get food? There's no way to work. There's no way to get medical help, anything. And the, and sexual traffickers are predators. They're predators and they're looking for victims. So every time you have a, conflict zone, you're creating victim after victim after victim, widespread across villages, across towns, across, and the traffickers are waiting. They're just waiting for these opportunities. They'll grab orphans. They'll grab, you know, people from refugee camps. They'll get women. They'll do whatever. I mean, look at what happened in Bosnia, for example, the women there rounded up, taken to- Tell me which you know. is this after the war? I, I sit here uh, speaking to you, not far from Bosnia. I'm in Croatia. I know. Uh, I know. So, well, uh, it was this, are you speaking after the war? I think I do know that story now is starting to sound a little familiar to me. Is that what you're referring to after the this war? This is during, during the Bosnian war, during oh, the wow. war. 
Okay. And in fact, after the war, after, you know, the men had been killed, you know, in, in huge numbers, there were many Arabs who went and married Bosnian widows, Bosnian women, okay. many very rich Arab men from different countries. And they went and, you know, found these beautiful young wives, you know, wow. and, and marrying them, that's legitimate. They've been putting a lot of money into reconstruction there. They've been building mosques, so on and so forth. You need to rebuild society, but you have to look at what is the, the cost of what uh -huh. you're doing and are women and girls paying those prices? You know, sure. are they, be, are they considered part of the, you know, part of the, the cost of doing business? If you look in another place, for example, in the Congo, they've just found out that UN peacekeepers were, um, tr were trafficking young girls and they, they were sleeping, prostituting young girls. They impregnated some UN peacekeepers. Wow. The very people that you think are going to go there and protect the vulnerable, they were taking advantage of the vulnerable. Yeah, I can, I can see your, your mind is blown. I can see it. <laughs> well, I mean, it just, it, it, it's insane. It's, it's, it's also making me think of this, this story that I, I, I read just the other day about a, a Sudanese, uh, diplomat in New York who clearly has some sort of issues, uh, because they caught him passed out drunk on a completely separate other occasion, but he is supposed to have raped a woman twice and then, uh, and then fled on his diplomatic immunity. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 That's, that's, just, that's not unusual. What? Like every once in a while I'll read about somebody in America and they, or Europe and they're fan to be keeping a slave in their house, you know? Yeah. Like a, somebody that they claim is a relative and yet they're imprisoned in the house and working and not being paid and what have you. I mean, this, you know, what is yeah. human nature? When you look at this, you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. I know because, you know, on one hand, I've got this, this strange, the way that I look at it and the way that I can truly see the world after traveling a whole lot. It's just for me, there is an overwhelming amount of good in the world or at least an overwhelming amount of attempts in a want and a desire to be good. And by good, I mean respectful and loving towards people who you do not know. Just, you know, it's just like uh, people don't generally, in the way I like to at least think about it is like, if you're walking down the street, most places on earth, and you have, you know, an ice cream in your hand. Someone doesn't just come up with a, a, a bat and just smack you in the face and just take your bat and they'll just see a card. There's not anarchy. There's not true anarchy in the world that at least sets the bar at, okay, well, we're just going to keep a little bit things here in, in, in there. But I mean, when I go even further and think about, and I know it, this is my, uh, experience in the Middle East or somewhere else being, being a guy and being a black guy here and there is obviously this is, going to change someone else's experience, you know, being in all these regions or, or anywhere. But generally speaking, I mean, I am at at least 99.9% whenever I, and I do this continually in, in other countries. If you lean on complete strangers for questions, for help, it's so rare that you are turned away. I mean, when, if you walk into a restaurant, you're talking, I mean, I can, it's, it's just endless the amount of times that I've gone into just a random place. I don't know where I'm going on with this. They will, they, they stop. I'm like, don't you have to work? They're like, nah, it's fine. 
And they'll walk me. They'll take me down there. They'll call their own it's, friends. It's like, your charming personality, Will. You just okay. win them over. <laughs> okay, you well, just that's, flash that smile and yeah. nobody if, can resist you. If that's the case, then okay. But at least for me, the way it forms my worldview is that there's a general consensus that, you know, things are, are good. Uh, in, in, in closing here, I mean, I'm, this is swinging things pretty crazy. Uh, but you mentioned, okay. And I don't know if you speak about this, so you'll have to let me know, but you mentioned in the very beginning, or I mentioned reading your quote, you're not an atheist. So I'm a practicing Muslim. I'm a practicing Muslim. Okay. That's perfect because as you know, in the West, the entire, a a lot of the, the bark against uh, Islam and stuff like this is that it's not, that's not compatible with your beliefs possibly as a feminist. So how do you deal with that? I mean, (laughs) what do you want? I I, want to, I mean, this is who I am. My faith, I, I do say though, my faith precedes my feminism. I will always put my faith, but I don't, I don't, because I know my religion so much more intimately than they do. I have worked out the kinks. I have deeply examined where I feel there might be incompatibility and I have worked my way around those, those steaming anomalies. And this is the beautiful thing about my faith is that you get to wrestle with it. You get to ask the questions. You get to talk to any scholar you want, read any book you want. You come up with, you know, there are so many different ways to interpret almost everything, right? If there's a scholar there, every scholar has, you know, what is, what is fatwa? You know that word fatwa? Sure. You, you, oh my God. They, oh, well, fatwa. A fatwa <laughs> is just an opinion. It's an opinion that a scholar gives. It's not a law. It's not a commandment. It's not a you know, it's not a, a, a hypnotic word that you suddenly start acting in whatever way. So I use my intellect and I use my heart and I use all these things to come up with something that works for me. And that's what is Islam, I keep saying to people, it's not monolithic. It has space for everyone. There, everybody, anybody can find some sense. And really, I think that's characteristic of all faith. And I wouldn't even call that cherry picking. I would just say that is an intelligent way to deal with questions of the heart and the mind and the soul and the body and the spirit. And you've got to come up with something practical that works for you. That's the way to be a spiritual person in this world. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, what you're saying actually is almost word for word. Exactly. We had a pastor on who, uh, he had an, very interesting life where he was actually a drug dealer uh, for a very long time before he became a pastor. Right. And God spoke to him. uh, And one of the, was just with another co-host of mine. And he literally, he said, so when you say God spoke to you, did you mean intuition or like how he said, no, yeah, he spoke to me. He said, I heard the second time God spoke to me, I heard a physical, you know, or I, sorry, I heard a auditory, you know, voice and stuff. And and we were asking him about, uh, you know, all of the things. And, his, his his approach to his faith was one with which you use your intellect in order to navigate along with some of the teachings and understandings and rules in order to navigate the world that we're in, right? I mean, uh, it's going to be hard for, you know, any of the prophets uh, or, I don't know, depending on whatever religion you're in, to tell you how long you should be spending on Facebook or TikTok <laughs> <laughs> or any of that. So we're going to need you guys to use your intellect here, you know, use your judgment. You know, I mean, that's an extreme case, but it's also, it's also funny, I think, because most people will judge another faith by the extremes. 
And obviously the West has met extremist, uh, you know, uh, acts. No, from- nobody, nobody has met an extremist. They have only met okay. people like their neighbor or their doctor or their whatever. And they go, <laughs> he's great. She's great. Have they <laughs> actually met true. an actual extremist? That's no, true. you only have seen them through the media. That's true. That's so, so true. Yeah. And they almost never get, I, I don't know of an instance in this. Most of the extremists, they're extreme for a reason. And the, the general consensus between any religion with, with the extremists is that they don't represent them. Right. Islam, Islam does not allow for extremism. Islam says Islam is the middle way, the middle path, mm-hmm. the path of moderation. That's interesting. So extremism, extremism is not even supposed to be a characteristic of Islam. Sure, be extreme in your love for God or your faith or how, whatever, but extremism, living in this world and getting along with other people, it can't work. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It cannot work. It's more of a live and let live approach. Right. In a lot of different religions, I've enjoyed reading about the Gnostics. Uh, in I've loved and I haven't found a good book. And I would love to f- talk to an amazing scholar on this, uh, the Sufis. Um, oh. <laughs> utterly fascinating to me i'm waiting i've got as you can see there's tons of books here sitting uh behind me that i'm yet to go through but i am i'm working my way through them but i haven't yet found my book on sufism and the sufis because what i mean so fascinating their mystical beliefs the fact that you know these guys they've they've been revolutionaries as well there have been sufi orders in turkey and you know Mm -hmm. different parts of the uh, the middle east that have been very politically very active wow resistance movements, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Yeah. I have written a novel in which I've, you know, sort of written that about that, that history in my part of the world as well. Yeah. I, yeah, I find that incredibly, incredibly interesting. And that's just from a superficial nature. I know that I'm going to take a, a nice deep dive down in that, uh, in that world. But, uh, as we're closing up here, what are you working on? What's, what's going on? You, you're, you're active, you know, so I've got to imagine that you're doing something cool right now or what's in the future buying a lot of menstrual pads for a lot of women <laughs> okay yeah. no besides that i just finished work on a a novel that's going to be published in may of 2023 it is a feminist dystopia set in the middle east 70 years in the future it's a story of, wow. of female resistance it's a kick-ass female army that comes out of the mountains and sort of you know okay smashes the patriarchy <laughs> and uh it's a sequel to a book that I published in 2018 called Before She Sleeps. The new novel is called The Monsoon War, and I'm really excited about it. Okay. Okay. So this is what's here. Have you finished it or no? I finished it. I was working on the proofs over the summer. Okay. Could we uh, briefly, before we go, you wrote an article in the New York Times, I think in 2015, Can Soccer Bring Equality to Pakistan? What was oh, that wow. dealing with? Oh my God, I'd have to go look up that article all over again because 2015 is like a lifetime ago. <laughs> it's true. I think it was looking at, it was looking at sort of the, the burgeoning movement of, of, of football, as I think we should call it, soccer in Pakistan because our, our national sports have always been cricket and hockey. But, you know, there was, there are some academies that are uh, going on here that girls are attending. So I think I was looking at it from like a, a that feminist point of view about whether soccer is the sport that's really going to break that glass ceiling out there. Well, that's yeah. There's a whole lot in there. Well, so that that'll definitely be where we'll start uh, next time because that I'll, that I'll issue, read it before we talk next time. Totally, and I know thank you, and you will definitely uh, see the 
issues that were going on in the U.S. with the equality movement. I don't know if you know about that, but in that football world, I mean, it was oh, yeah. something. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, amazing, though. Thank you uh, for being My here. Pleasure. This was awesome. And uh, guys, we will link to everything down below. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much.